It's your thing. Do what you want to do. Is it recording? Maybe Stan is in good spirits. Maybe he don't. Hi, Stan. What up, Marshall? How you feeling? Good. Have you ever been peeing and you're staring at the wall and there's like a pattern on the wall, like there's like the, you know, the stucco frosting thing. It's all random shapes and then your eyes start to blur and then you start seeing like pictures in those shapes. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't want to go first. (laughs) But now that you've opened it up, sure. Yeah. No. Well, well, I mean, I'm sure I have because life is long and varied. <laughs> it's like seeing pictures in the clouds, you know? Yeah. I do that all the time. It happens when you, your eyes start to like blur and things start to mush. Anyway, cool. What are we going to do today, Stan? We're going to do voicemails because we ran out of topics. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's because we got a lot of voicemails. Oh, good. Well, if we got a lot of voicemails, I trust there's some good ones in there. I think there are. Charlie went through them and he filtered them. So, all the bad ones are gone. So, if you're not going to hear your voicemail, <laughs> that means yours was bad. Charlie edits this podcast. And it's, not, it's not me, Marshall and I that yeah. are deciding that it's bad. If yours did not make it, blame Charlie. I wouldn't say blame Charlie. I'd no, say learn yourself. from Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah blame learn yourself. from Charlie because he is an editor and an editor's job is to make sure stuff doesn't get through that shouldn't get through and right. also to combine things in interesting ways. But that's what this is not about Charlie. This is about our our listeners. Yeah, Charlie, get out of our episode. Hey there, I'm Jordan Barton. Um, I had a question that I was hoping that uh, Stan could answer just because I I look at Stan uh, and I I, I look at Marshall and the relationship that you guys have and it's awesome and I I want that in my life. I think an iPad with an Apple Pencil and like a pencil and just some decent paper is enough to make you like there a lot of the tools that you need to to grow. And so, I, I feel like I've reached the point where money can't buy better tools that will make me a better artist. What I need is relationships that build me up. And I'm curious, um, how can I make myself valuable or, or appealing to older artists? I've tried talking to uh, one or two. I, I need to do more, yes. And a lot of them say they're busy, which is valid. So, I'm just curious, like, in an increasingly digital age, how do I get out there and spend time physically within this space that other professional artists are working? Thanks a bunch. Love the show. Jordan, thank you for the kind words. Yeah. Wow, Stan, I, I mean, the obvious answer from my perspective is that the reason that we're hanging around together is because we have professional benefit to each other. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, that's why we're doing a podcast. Well, and that's not why we started hanging out together. Uh, when is we it? started I mean, hanging out well, together. I guess it was. <laughs> You're like, hey, who's this handsome young man who's becoming popular on YouTube? I need to get some of that street cred in my life. 
<laughs> I gotta get on his YouTube channel so I could get some followers on my Instagram. Well, you don't even have a Instagram. <laughs> well, yeah, no pretense otherwise. But Stan was good company. We had about we we had a how long a relationship of many hours of conversations of uh, which I think it was. I know from my point of view, it was Stan made me smarter. <laughs> I made you seem smarter by contrast. No, no, that was not <laughs> it. Stan uh, challenges things and does it in a constructive way. Uh, there was just a lot to be learned from him. Uh, there was a lot that was lacking in what I was doing professionally. <laughs> We've talked about that before. It's just the marketing and paying attention to business is something that he was better at than me. And so, yes, we do seek out friends that are are like us in some ways and who are full of qualities that we don't have and would like to hang out with them. I feel like even if we never did anything professionally together, yeah. we would still have a relationship. We would still talk to each other. Yeah. I mean, that was really the reason that we got together every week when I went to teach at Blizzard. We were just, we just wanted to have conversations together. We right. didn't have any projects we were working on together no. at the time. It was just like, hey, you got an hour, let's walk and talk. We, yeah. That's it. It was, it was just a friendship of common interest. And that is like any relationship you have in your life. You just gotta, there has to be something that brings you together. Common interests, sexual tension, <laughs> there are four there are four That's kinds like of you, you, you just kept a straight face with that one and just kept going you made me think of what brings people together yes and one of them was eros which is sexual tension uh -huh. uh, uh, one of them is friendship uh -huh. which is uh, a common interest yeah. uh, one of them is affection which is that some people you you play with they're just fun to you know okay. horse around with just mess around uh, yeah yeah and then the other one is long term committed painful love the the kind that is I am committed to this relationship even if it doesn't uh, bring me <laughs> joy and satisfaction okay. but those are those are our four old Greek words to show that our single word is not enough but anyway yeah one of those one of those four things is going to be at play. In, in any relationship that's So, worth when he having. asks, when Jordan asks that question, I feel like he's looking for an answer, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah. here's the step-by-step -step recipe of talking to old people. <laughs> yeah. That's literally what he asked. He's like, how can I become, you know, get, have relationships with older artists? Mm -hmm. Like, well, it's, you got to make sure that they want to have a relationship with you and every yeah. single older person is going to be different. That's right. It's not like age makes everybody the same. <laughs> age has nothing to do with this. It's, it's just who are you talking to? What do they like? Are you two, do you, are you compatible to be friends? Yeah. And the way to really find people that you connect with is just is to talk to a lot of people, go to events, do things, reach out to people, be social and you'll make relationships. I, I don't really have an easy answer to this other than that it's just it's just life. It's Yeah, and sometimes it fails. I mean, there are people that I've wanted to mentor me that just would not mentor me. They just weren't interested. They didn't uh, yeah. 
like you said, they're busy with other things. They've got their, they don't have any needs. But one, one thing you do is you look at what a person is seeking. You look at what a person wants and ask, can I help them get that? Can I offer it? And if I can't offer it, can I help them get that? We've, that's been a common theme in, in looking at guests. I mean, we've talked about that with people that are in our lives that we prize is that they make our lives better, simpler somehow, uh, more richer. So it's like Stan said, it's going to be different with every person. I can think of all sorts of people my age that have a completely different set of interests that would not want to be friends with my younger friends for whatever reason. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't really know how much value we can offer in this, except to point out that life is complex and luck is a factor. And being cool. Yeah. Being cool is a factor. <laughs> Old people like cool. Oh, yeah. They love it when young people are cool. <laughs> uh, this, this might be something worth putting in the comments. It may be that our audience can answer this oh, better. Yeah. Audience, are you, if you are old, what That's do you dangerous. look for in a relationship with a younger person? <laughs> I, that's no, dangerous. God, that came that's, out completely wrong. It's, <laughs> no, don't answer that. Yeah, but you're also going to get this kind of thing, these dad blasted young people with their idiot this or that. What? If they were you're only not... different, you can get old people whining about young people that I'll tell you how I'll have a relationship with you is you put your... <laughs> Damn smartphone down. You know, you can get, you can get, <laughs> well, well, hey, that's good advice. Yeah, you can get crotchety old people that are just uh, going to criticize your whole generation as a whole. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why age is even a thing here. Yeah, like, I don't I, either. You could be 30 years old and you could have a mentor who is also 30. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I've spent three hours this week with someone who's in his mid 80s. And we are just the best of friends. And he is a mentor to me. And he just enjoys me. He just loves me. Uh, it, it's a great symbiotic relationship. Ah. So, uh, I think it just happens from mutual interest. And wow. Marshall, you found your own Marshall? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I found wow. a few of my own Marshalls. But Oh, my God. But at your age, you found your own Marshall. That's right. That's 20, amazing. 22, 23, See, 22 years older than me. Yeah. If Marshall could do it. Jordan, yeah. you can too. Yeah, Jordan. The majority <laughs> of the world only cares about what's hot right now. And when you find someone who loves what was good, really good in previous generations, that they put energy into that, that makes a big connection. I've got two students who I don't even really know that well, former students, but who they text me regularly and I text them regularly and we just love each other without having spent much time, but it's based around the fact that they love Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and the the bands of the late 60s and the 70s. And they know these albums and the order they came out as well as I do. So, it's like, how can you not when they say, I'm listening to that, and then they name their albums and they say, oh yeah, isn't that good? And I can connect with it. I've got another young friend who's now 30-ish who also, when he finds out about the, the music that I listened to when I was a teenager and later, he researches it, listens to it, goes through the whole catalog of it. Those are just, those are just common interests. Do you think common interests, common interests is like the main thing that brings people together? Or? With that Greek word, I think it's phileo, uh, P-H-I-L-E-O, which is friendship. Okay. 
uh, yeah, it's mainly, it seems to be mainly around a common interest and a common goal. Yeah, that's a big one with me. Here's another thing. Here's what I meant when I said about Stan that we're professionally involved. I have probably a hundred people in my life that I wish I could spend hours with each week and there's just no time. So, who do I spend hours with each week? The people I work with. Me. That's right. And that's why I'm always oh, trying man. to get friends oh. teaching friends teaching at the same school, see if there's a way to make collaborations. Can we get together and bring our talents together to do something? Because that is so exciting if you're spending most of your week with the people you'd want to hang out with anyway, and you're spending time with them and making money. It's been it's been my conscious goal for decades, ever since, since I was a college student. We just like hanging around with each other. Can we go into business together? So, yeah, yeah. that was around the necessary mutual pursuit of income. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, pe people will want to hang around with you if you help them make money. Uh, yeah. But I think there should be a stronger core that holds it together than just money. There's got to be. Otherwise, it will fall apart very quickly. It will be like all those terrified teachers who are involved in relationships in dysfunctional schools where they can't stand the people they work for, but they can't leave the job because they have to. <laughs> Wouldn't it be better to be working with and for people that you are would hang yeah. around with anyway? So anyway, but I don't know if we're helping Jordan. We're just we're saying it's about mutual interest. Yeah, and, and also to your point, Jordan. What you're saying, this is actually a very, very important thing for people's success. There's that phrase that if you, if you read any self-help book of, for success, they're going to say, you know, you, you are like the, the, uh, the five people you hang out with around the most or something like that. I don't remember the exact quote, <laughs> but like, yeah, you, you, you look at the five people that you're around with the most, you're basically just going to absorb their qualities onto yourself. And so, you do need to start surrounding yourself with people who you want to be like, yeah. um, not people who you think, oh, God, like I, I hate spending time with them, but I have to. It's a relational question and relationships are complex. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, next question. Hi, my name's Juno and I'm an artist who has more of an interest in horror media and I was wondering what you guys in the Draftsman Show think about horror art, like whether it's paintings or it's a consecutive piece of art like uh, Junji Ito work or just like animations, just what you think would go into making horror art or just what you think someone should study if they want to make horror art, um, just anything scary or just stuff like that. I'm not sure of the term. Is it horror? H-O-R-R-O-R? -R -R? Yeah, some horror art, yeah. like scary art. Yeah. So, I know very little about horror art. I actually don't even really enjoy horror movies because I find them quite annoying. Most of them. Some are actually really good that have a story, but most horror stuff is just that I've seen is just kind of like try to trick you into jumping. And I just, I don't get scared by it. I just get annoyed by it. And it, it doesn't interest me. But I know obviously that there's bad horror and there's good horror. <laughs> um, and I, but I just don't know much about the genre, so sorry, yeah. I, can't, I can't say much. I don't know much about the genre, but I know enough about it to know that it is a complex, multifaceted, rich genre with a history and that if you were studying genre with me, the first half of the semester would be for you to research the different branches of horror. In fact, I've had some students do that 
and you divide it into the difference between terror and horror and there's, you know, different kinds of horror. Uh, but you would want to understand an overview of it and how it evolved. And I highly recommend that you take Robert McKee's horror uh, seminar. He has a webinar probably now, but he used to do it live on the structure of horror as stories. But for making art, uh, it would be the usual bits of advice. You you choose what you like. You choose what you love. You even choose a little bit of what you don't like. You might choose a good deal of what you don't like and rebound against it. What do you feel like is cheap surprise? What do you feel like is too obvious? What do you feel like misses understatement uh, and could use some allowing the um, uh, audience to imagine it? But there, there's a lot in the history of the genre for you to pay attention to it. And I'd understand two things. This is, this is more personal than artistic. One is the value of horror as a genre. Why did it evolve? It serves a human need of objectifying the monsters within us and getting some control over them. It serves as a warning. There's all sorts of lessons in horror for who gets uh, destroyed or who doesn't. Uh, so there's a value in genre or in, uh, in horror as a genre, but there's also a risk in it. We spent a fall one semester watching horror movies one week after another where I did this with students. And several students bowed out of it and a number of students when we talked about it found that it affected their emotional lives negatively. A steady diet of looking at the worst side of life can, I think, be emotionally, uh, psychologically harmful. Yeah. So, there is, there is that, is that that's, a, that's more of a personal thing. As a professional thing, look at the people who have succeeded at developing their stories and images and get their advice because they are in the genre, they've mastered the genre, they've mastered what they need to have attracted you. So, they would be the people you'd listen to. Yeah. It seems like this advice is, is it's like any advice that we've given to people who want to learn anatomy. It's like, you, okay, pick pick your people, study them, mm -hmm. <laughs> practice, immerse yourself into the genre and just start learning everything you possibly can about it so that you yeah. start speaking that language fluently. Yeah. Don't miss Alan Moore's book, Writing for Comics. <laughs> Because in there, he, he, he's good with horror. And he also mentions in there that you don't, you don't just study the people who do it professionally and know the tricks of how to scare an audience and give them nightmares. You also look at life and you list what the scariest things are to you and why they terrify you and get your head around that. And that's, that way it can be. It's interesting how some horror writers seem so emotionally healthy. And I've wondered whether it's because they get their nightmares out rather than holding them in. Uh, maybe. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is Walking Dead considered horror? I mean, there's there's people being tortured and ripped apart. That's uh, well, I'm sure. Was, yeah, I'm sure it's considered horror. But when limbs know, are being cut and yeah. cut off, and yeah, that's 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 the, the gory horror. Gory horror. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, the, yeah, there's so many, probably so many different types, but I mean, that's probably the 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 horror I've spent my the most time in in my life is is Walking Dead, 
Mm-hmm. There was I, I actually watched like the first five seasons or something. I don't remember exactly how many, but eventually got to the point where I just burned out because of how they keep trying to one up themselves in how difficult they make it to watch. Yeah. It's like, oh, this wasn't painful enough? Ah. Let's go to the next episode. I haven't watched it. I have the Blu-ray of the first season, and people. I, I understand that it's really well store, uh, well told story. Frank Darabond, I think, directed or was involved in a lot of that. But uh, that's the reason is that I just don't like that kind of thing. It's it's. I don't want those images in me. Uh, I don't want to meditate on them. Yeah, eventually, just yeah, like I said, I got burned out from watching people's limbs get cut off and faces getting burned for the sake of torture and for just for the sake of physical pain being shown so you could feel it too. It was like, okay, why am I doing this? Like the, the story isn't the most important thing anymore. Now it's just to make one up the the difficulty level of pain to watch. Well, that would be a spectrum to attend to is on the one extreme, you've got explicit and on the other extreme, you've got implicit. And to study who is it that leaves a lot out but can still terrify you. That's a particular talent. It's very easy in some ways to be ex- explicit. And you would want to go back to, gosh, those 19, early early 1930s uh, universal horror films, which aren't really horror films. They're terror films. And even previous to that, that, that F.W. Murnau, one of uh, Nosferatu, which probably doesn't hold up to you, but it's got some terrifying imagery in it. And of course, Val Luton's nine movies from the 1940s that I talked about in our first season. Uh, a lot of horror directors, William Friedkin does a uh, commentary on Val Luton's uh, The Leopard Man, which I don't know whether you'll like The Leopard Man, but William Friedkin decided to become a horror movie director. He directed The Exorcist. Uh, in response to Val Luton's movies because he he gushes over this guy's talent that with so little, so little budget and showing so little explicitness, he could really conjure up the feelings of dread that good terror can do. So, to understand that spectrum and decide, here's where I am on that spectrum and if I'm over here, I've got a counterpoint of this, am I over here, I've got a counterpoint of this. Uh, don't neglect Hitchcock either. Hitchcock was a master of terror, master of suspense with very little explicitness, some explicitness, but he used it as punctuation that just terrifies some people. I saw the birds when I was a kid and I remember there's just a one quick shot in there that has haunted me all my life and that was because he knew how to orchestrate what I give the audience where nothing's left to the imagination and how much I make the audience imagine and trigger their imagination. I don't know how much that's going to help you, but that's that's what you can get from me with a spontaneous answer. If you love the medium, that you get an excuse now to devote a few decades to getting to know the medium and seeing what other people have done and seeing what you have to bring to. Not the medium, the genre. Hey there, my name's Kat Edwards, and I have a question for you guys. I'm in my fourth year of art school, and I'm looking to get my master's after this. Uh, My goal for this is to eventually teach college-level art classes, so I was wondering what would be maybe the best way to get your foot in the door into teaching at a university. Thanks. Bye. Should I answer this one? Um, I think so, because... 
this is specifically about teaching at a university and I actually, I've never taught at a university so I, I wouldn't know how to get that job. Yeah. I assume it's maybe to be to be good and have a master's degree but I don't know, maybe there's more politics involved than that. Well, there, there are a lot of politics involved and so that's where I'd aim. First, get your master's degree because if you don't have the master's degree, they automatically say, okay, we don't want you. Uh, I got in uh, other ways and that's that's this way. Once you've got the master's degree, you're going to be one of many who want that job in the university uh, and the way you get it is you get to know those people that are your potential hirers and you you get to know them positively where they like you and you like them and they would like you to be working with them. That's how it's happened with me with every job I've had at a school. But how do you get your foot in the door to even create that? Take classes at that university and impress the teacher so much mm. that they say, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have you around more often? You're so proactive. You make the class better. Okay. Uh, That's how I got my first teaching gig, even though yeah. it wasn't at a university, it was at Watts. But yeah, yeah. okay. That works. But that's hard. Yeah. But it can be done. It's, it's, it's yeah. done a lot. I guess that's true. It, yeah, it, it should be hard. <laughs> References, mutual friends, all of that stuff. Politics isn't all bad. Yeah. Politics is good when it works to your advantage and when it's, it's fair. <laughs> but anyone who doesn't get the job is going to think it isn't fair. Oh, they like right. her better. Well, if yeah. they liked her better and you earned that respect and you earned that likableness by your your benefiting them, then that's great. That's how it should be. Yeah, but some politics is wrong too. Oh, absolutely. Some politics is just, you know, racist. Yeah. Don't get me started on the stories of politics at schools because it'll just turn that way. But yeah. get your master's degree so that they don't disqualify you for the fact that you didn't go through all those hoops. Uh, do your best with your work and your ability to teach and all that and then somehow uh, establish relationships with the environment you want to teach. You do not want to teach in university. <laughs> if you are going into a university where you go in there and it's hell and it often is, the ask other people for the stories on that. The nastiness that can go on in art departments is beyond belief. I always heard about it. I mean, not just art departments, but just college departments in general. So, be careful. I want to teach in university and you get this job that you strive for and then you spend the rest of your life wondering how you can get out of it when you're dependent on it. Okay. <laughs> if you can, choose where you want to be. Yeah. Words of warning. Sorry to have gone off on the <laughs> negative side of it, but as long as we keep that general. Hey, you're, you're the master of horror. Yeah, finding a unifying thread here. Okay, let's go to the next question. Hey, yo, Stan and Marshall. My name is Kipling. Um, I had a question that I know uh, I and many young, tons of uh, other young artists struggle with constantly, um, especially when creating a portfolio or just putting my own work out there is, should you be drawing what you want to draw to get attention and work, or how to know when that is a failing avenue? Thanks. Oh. That's it. I think I know you, Kipling. If this is Kipling from Concept Design Academy, who's been in my classes more than once, should you, in your portfolio, the stuff you want or the stuff that you think the world wants? Is that the question? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, my answer to this is obviously it's going to be a, an opinion, but I, I'm very, very far leaning towards this side of the, the spectrum is that yes, you should only 
do what you want. Um, completely, 100%. <laughs> but I, I, I understand that might be a little too far. That, you know, but yeah, whatever. That, that's my opinion. I lean really strong in the direction that you lean. Okay. But not 100%. But not a, maybe 92? And well, 87, here's a, uh, 52. No, I, I wouldn't turn it into percentages. I would say you would look for the overlapping circles. I'm interested in this, and there's a market for this. Well, that's still okay. Yeah, but if you find the overlaps, that's still all of that is still what you're interested in. Indeed. So what, that's still the same thing I said, kind of. It is. Okay, so I think what you're trying to say with the overlap. And that's the, the difference between what you just said and what I said is that I'm saying if you're interested in it, yeah, do it, put it in. You're saying if you're interested in it and it overlaps with what people want, put it in, which implies that if you're interested in it, but there is no overlap, then you remove it. Right. I disagree with that portion of it. Okay. I think that if you are interested in it, but there's no overlap with what people want, you could still go down that path if you feel like there is still something to it that other people are missing because you can create your own market. You can do something completely new that's never been done before that there, there is no overlap because it's new and now people want it. Yeah. They didn't know they wanted it but you made it, you did it awesome and in an awesome way and now there is an overlap. Okay, then I think maybe the best way to approach this is that it's gambling. Well, <laughs> and if you gamble where the overlap happens, it's a surer bet. And if you're gambling where the overlap doesn't happen, you may still win big. As we can see examples of somebody- You can who win was, way bigger. You can win way bigger because nobody else is doing that and all of a sudden you come into the arena and wow, we yeah. didn't know that we loved this. That was where we talked a bit about that with the Hitmakers uh, yeah. one. But why not have a more diversified portfolio? Literally now, now we're talking about financial portfolios, right? Yeah. Or we're connecting those two. A portfolio that has a lot of very, very like your own stuff, but it also has the stuff you like to do that overlaps with stuff people want. Yeah. And so some, you know, there'll be a little bit of, of, of that whole spectrum in there. Right. We've got a spectrum though. One is that I only do what's commercial and I put aside my desires altogether. One is that I only do what I desire yeah. and I don't care what the market is. And... James Scott Bell has a course for the great courses called uh, How to Write Best-Selling Fiction, I think it's, it is. And uh, he does the concentric circle thing, that if you only do the stuff that is what the market expects, you make a living at that, you could be real tired of making that living. Yeah. And if you only do the stuff you're interested in, uh, it may not sell. So that's why. The overlap is worth looking at, but if you feel strongly enough and you're willing to bet I might not make a living with this, but gosh, it's going to be great. That's your decision, Kipling. Yep. And and I think the best advice we can give is see it on a spectrum and make your decision where you belong in that. And if you've got another way to make money, uh, you can sell real estate during the day and do your art on your own. Then you have no concerns for the marketability of your art. Yeah. The things we do agree on here, Marshall, is that there shouldn't be anything in portfolio that you actually dislike doing. I think that's correct, yeah. yeah. Because you're, you're setting yourself up to make yourself miserable if you get hired. All right, next question. 
Hello, Stan and Marshall. My name is Oliver, and I had a question about becoming a art professional. I personally know a number of successful illustrators who have expressed feelings of almost regret about making their love of art into a career. Um, doing art for the love of it is very different than doing it for money, as you no longer get to rely just on your personal inspiration to make art, and instead have to answer a client's call and solve their problem within all their varying parameters and, and do it by a certain time and, and get paid for it. So as experienced instructors, I'm curious if you ever have your students put consideration toward this kind of important decision um, and if you've ever had a similar internal conflict about the matter. Thank you. We've got a common theme here. Yeah, this is exactly those people that hate what they're doing are the ones that put something in their portfolio that they didn't like doing and then they got a job doing that thing and now they hate doing it. So, yeah, but that's not the only people who fit that only, category. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you you might stop liking doing something or you like doing that thing but you just don't like doing it for someone else. Um, or you, you like doing that thing or you don't like doing it for that specific person <laughs> because you just don't like working with that person. This is the argument against the industry. What do you mean? I mean, this, Stan and I know at least one person who, in going in to be an artist, started to look at all of these people who have succeeded in the arts and how, find out how unhappy they are in their jobs, that it's like, I don't know that I want to do this. I want to find another role in it. I knew that I wanted to find a way to make money drawing pictures any way I could make money drawing pictures. And so I took what I could get, but it was not really what I wanted. And... The argument against the industry is that whatever you embrace for this work, you it will give you pain because of deadlines, because of changing styles, just because of there's all sorts of all sorts of pressure, there's all sorts of difficult things about a career. Yeah. So so you can you can have a knockdown argument never to go into the arts as a profession from some people who feel strongly about that. I had it from an older man who was a, a sometimes commercial artist. He was a good sometimes commercial artist and I was a teenager and I went over to his house and he showed me his work and I was just knocked out by the skill in his work. And he let me know he made his living at that point as in, an inspector of homes to see if they were up to, to trade requirements because he knew a lot about houses. And he told me to get a job in something reliable and do your art on the side. And I remember a voice inside me welling up saying, don't listen to him. <laughs> You're smarter than that old fart. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I true. decided I don't yeah. want a job doing the other thing. Yeah. And, and so that's what I pursued. <laughs> okay. okay. That, that, that argument makes zero sense to me whatsoever. It's like, okay, don't hate your job doing this thing you love. Hate your job doing this thing you don't love. It's, you're still going to hate your job. Yeah. There's a higher chance that you're going to enjoy your job as an artist than as that other side thing that you got just because it's safer. You know, you might not love your job as an artist, but there's probably going to be more elements of it that you do enjoy. So, I, do, I just don't get that, how that is even a solution. That's, that's part of why you're doing what you want to do for a living, is that you, you, you really did grip this and got a hold on it. Now, I do know where to go with this with it as an answer. Okay. Albert, I do know where to go with this. It's where it's the best place to go as a, as a teacher 
answering your question. Study the masters. And here's what I mean by that. Look at people who've made it into middle age or even old age who love their work and even who make so much money that they don't have to work for the rest of their lives. Bob Duncan told me, he said, you know, I made enough money to where I don't need to work for the rest of my life. Why do I keep writing? It's, I, just, I just love doing it. I like to see what it is I'm going to put out. And so, if you've got people who are studyable, that you can listen to interviews with them, that you can talk about their work, talk about, uh, find out about their work day, how they arrange it, find people who love what they do. And then, when you find more than one person who you can say, I want a career like that, and they didn't get burned out. Norman Rockwell painted all the way till the end. The Coen brothers don't have to make money doing films, and yet they keep making films. How is it that these people, what's going on with them? And I think the thing in common with them more than anything else is a love of the work and a certain amount of autonomy. That is, that they have control over or at least a good deal of influence over how the work will be. I think that is, in my observation, that's the thing that I locked onto is that these are people who would do it for no money. So, if you do it for no money, why not do it for money and work to make it more on your own terms? Yeah, I, I agree with that. The autonomy is very important and just the love of the work, obviously, that's important as well. But I feel like if you do study people that enjoy their job, you're going to find that it depends more so on the person than on the job. Yes, but when you've got a dozen of those persons that all have something in common, uh -huh. then you say this starts to transcend individual temperaments or personalities. And I'm talking about jobs here. I'm talking about jobs. Specifically, job, like you're working for somebody else. Yeah. Um, if I, I think it, some people can have any job, they could be cleaning toilets and they could be very happy just because they appreciate life. Whereas somebody could have a really cool, fun job and just be miserable because yeah. they 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 always want change or something. I don't know what it is, but I just I just know that you know, there's a spectrum of people, and the personality determines how happy you are as well. And Albert, I hope you spent four dollars on me and watched the Design Your Career with a whiteboard because that was about getting you out onto a whiteboard surface and see what your loves are and what the opportunities are and seeking how they connect. Yeah, I lean in your direction, Stan, but I also know that it's harder for some people to have a security that, okay, I don't, I don't know how many illustration majors in colleges when in the late 70s and through the 80s, it was hard to get work as an illustrator, so they just became graphic designers because there was more work as graphic designers. They didn't want to be graphic designers. They wanted to be illustrators. But yeah. that was out of economic necessity, is that I really have to support myself. And But some of them were probably very happy and some were miserable. I would be miserable. <laughs> and some of them brought their illustration, illustration skills to graphic design. Yeah. When you, when you see a graphic design as illustration, the way a whole host of great illustrators in the 70s and 80s saw illustration as graphic design. They did less of the anatomy and the perspective and the NCY thing and they did more of flat layouts that were beautiful graphic. Toulouse-Lautrec is an example of an illustrator who illustration is to him more graphic design than anything else. If you can use the job that pays you money 
to either get the skills to do the other job or treat this job metaphorically as the thing you want to do. That every one of my theater pieces is a is a series of illustrations, and every one of my series of illustrations are like keyframes from a movie. You get the idea. There are ways to get creative about getting satisfaction in your work by pretending that it's something else. Hi, Stan and Marshall. Uh, my name is Damien. I'm currently studying graphic design at Portland State University, specifically logotype design and calligraphy. And although I'm extremely passionate about design and letter forms and all that, I'm finding the more I learn and study, the harder it is for me to just draw for fun, which is what got me into art in the first place. So my question is, how do you stop your knowledge of art principles from blocking your creativity? I feel like my creativity through my college career has been significantly dulled by things like hierarchy and alignment and all that jazz. You know, I can't turn off my design brain to save my life. Anyway, thank you so much. I love the podcast, and I hope you have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Damien. I have a short answer. Read Writing the Natural Way. Ah, because I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he asked, my my brain just naturally went to that childhood play thing that you were talking about with yeah. the signs and designs yeah. from last episode. The training that you're going through right now, this disciplined assignments and pr practice this and then and it's all structure and you got to get good at all these very specific principles this is like creating patterns in your brain of how you're thinking which is good but your 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 brain is starting to forget those patterns of creativity that you used to have and so you need to go and practice that again it, it might be difficult for you right now to go and just be creative but exercises like what marshall mentioned like clustering those kinds of things will get your brain back into that pattern of thinking in that way. And so just do it, keep doing it um, to balance out the sign and design parts of your brain. Boy, you're a good student, Stan. Aha! You're already using the terminology. Oh, yeah. Going right here into the technical stuff. Well, you got to be a good student to be a good teacher. <laughs> do you? Boy. I don't know. Is that I just came up with that. I think so. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Damien. I yeah. hope. That that's oversimple answer might open up a world. It's a key to move in that direction and see what happens and hang around people who enjoy their work too. If you can find the students who really like doing what they're doing, you can pick that up. Hey, I want to say one more thing about writing the natural way is that for all my enthusiasm about the content, there was a bigger thing that I noticed that happened with that book. The whole structure of the book 31 years ago, acted as kind of a little injection of DNA uh, for the best influence on me over the last 30 years. It's sort of like when you hang around a person for a half hour, it's not so much what they've said, it's the vibe of how they go about things that really have influenced me. And in, in such a good way, if you can find people, colleagues and peers who you like how they do school and and connect with them. That's probably the best thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah, that's like what I was saying for for the uh for the first question about you know, making friends with mentors or whatever. It's it's really just about the people you hang out with. It's not finding mentors specifically. It's about surrounding yourself with people that you want to absorb the way they do things. Okay. Anyway, cool. Uh, next question. 
Hey, Stan and Marshall. I have a question about how to, I guess, properly price for commissions and art. I'm like making the transition of just doing art as a hobby into maybe something that I could actually make income and a career off of. But there's still like a large part of me that undersells myself. I just feel like, oh, you want to pay me $100 to buy any art supplies I could dream of? And and um, I just have to draw you a little picture for it with them. And I'm like, cool, deal. But then it ends up taking me, you know, 15, 20 hours to do that portrait. And if I'm actually doing it as a job, it just, it's not going to add up. <laughs> but I guess my question is, like, what advice do you have for, like, breaking that mindset or um, I guess making that transition in mindset towards seeing art as a viable um, career and not just something that I do for fun. Thanks so much. I really enjoy your podcast, guys. Have a good day. That's a whole topic I think we should devote uh, an entire episode to. Yeah, I think I think we have that plan already pricing. But okay. generally, though, I think I've mentioned this before. If you are still at the stage where $100 to do, paint or draw a portrait excites you, that probably means that you should take it <laughs> because you need the experience of starting to get a commission, working for a client. This is all, this all takes skill and it, there, there's things you're going to run into experiencing that process of getting a client. You're going to learn things about that, not just about drawing a portrait, but about working with a client. And you need to learn that stuff now and practice those things and not when you're getting paid $10,000 and run into these issues. Yeah. Not when you're getting paid $50,000, you, you start running into legal issues. Oh, you didn't learn how to put together the, a, right, a good contract? Oh, you should have done that when you were getting paid 100 bucks. And now, you know, start learning these things slowly and ramp up the seriousness level of, of how, you know, how professional you are. These things aren't an on and off switch where you're not a professional and then boom, you are a professional. Or you're you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year. It's like no, you you got to start with with a hundred bucks an hour or not an hour, a hundred bucks for a whole drawing and just consider it not a job. Consider it practice. Yeah, it's a donation. It's thank you for the opportunity to learn. It's rehearsal for the bigger paying ones. Exactly. And I know some people are listening to this probably hate my answer right now, but I, I hate your answer. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to fight you. Yeah. I'm going to fight you guys. No, I, I think it's, I, I've said it before that I think it's really selfish of the people who already are professional and are able to get jobs to tell the people at the, at the bottom just starting to get into it that they should charge a lot. It's selfish because they can't charge a lot yet. Nobody's going to pay them to if they charge a lot. They have to get the experience. And so, by making them charge a lot in order to, to keep your prices competitive, it's selfish for you. Uh, uh, stop doing that. <laughs> let, let young, unexperienced, inexperienced artists get be some experience. Let them be exploited. No, not exploited. Let them get some experience. Uh, okay. It, do you think that get, be, getting an internship is exploitation? Sure, but I'm, I'm not against exploitation. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, 
Okay. I'm glad sure. to be exploited for something where I get something okay. out of it. Yeah. Whatever. Sure. You're being exploited and you're exploiting them. Whatever. However you want to look at That's it. That's how I looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they're paying you $100 for for a huge risk. You might not give them anything of any kind of quality. Man. Because you've never done this before. You're exploiting that client. You are coming in <laughs> punching. I think we're going to put you in the ring with William Stout. <laughs> oh, would he say or, the opposite? Or Brad Holland. Yeah. <laughs> they would oh, say the yeah, opposite? Yeah. They, oh. would, they would pick that up and run with it. Sorry, William. I, I disagree with you. <laughs> Wait, what What would they say? I, I want to know. I, I, I don't want to speak for them. I've heard them okay. both speak, but I, yeah, I would like them to speak for themselves. Gosh, if, okay. if, we, if we could get <laughs> William Stout and if we could get yeah. uh, Brad Holland, they have opinions about this and they've got experience with it too. They've been around a yeah. long time. I don't know. I just, I, I look back at my history and when I was young, I did that. Yeah, I, I too. got jobs. I got paid a, literally a hundred dollars, like the exact thing. Every, Me too. For some reason, a hundred dollars is the number. Yeah. And I don't look back at that and be like, "What the hell? They took advantage of me." It's like, no, I gave them shit. I gave them a non-professional drawing, and it was motivation for me to practice drawing and try to think of myself as a professional. It got me in the mindset of being a professional at an age where I wasn't ready for it yet. I am so thankful that they gave me that opportunity. <laughs> I don't okay. know. Whatever. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell my stories when we take it up in an episode. Huh? I'll tell my stories yeah. of that when I take it up when we okay. take it up in an episode. Okay, that's going to be an interesting episode. I'll try to keep that same energy. Yeah. Screw you people that disagree no, with me. No, no, not that. <laughs> not that energy? Okay. No. I but, love you all. No, no. Not that but one either? High energy, high energy, but embracing sets of opposites. I respect your different opinion. Yeah, yeah. That's the way. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Next question. <laughs> um, hi, Marshall and Stan. I am Jacob, and I'm a 15-year-old aspiring multimedia artist. Um, and I thought you might have some insight about uh, reference, as in uh, the allusion to, you know, greater and other uh, bodies of work, whether that be uh, text or visual media. I've been told a couple times now that my work involves too much um, homework, as it were, or that my um, approach to imagery is too cerebral for what should be an entirely emotional endeavor. Um, and I thought particularly Marshall um, might have some sort of thoughts about the merits and demerits of involving uh, greater illusions within one's own work and sort of what that means for an artist. Uh, thanks so much. I have to be sure what we mean by allusions, though, whether it's referencing other works like where you're doing an homage, where Stephen Sondheim does a little bit of a thing that sounds like Gilbert and Sullivan, where you take a riff from somebody else and play with it, where your your movie shots look like shots from famous movies that you're doing an homage to, or yeah. whether you're talking about research that can bog you down because you've got to be so meticulous about it to get it right. I'm not really sure yeah. of the question. Yeah, this 15-year-old's vocabulary was a little bit too advanced for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I did not completely understand. As far as allusions, there are homages. There are allusions. Uh, those, those 
Simpsons episodes that I show have lots of shots that they've taken from noir and they've essentially stolen shots. People steal shots all the time in movies and, and uh, Norman Rockwell alluded to Michelangelo in some of his pictures where it's when anyone who knows the Michelangelo can say, oh, he's doing kind of a riff on the Michelangelo. That's all fair game. Uh, it's different than actually lifting somebody's imagery and putting it into your work and claiming it as your own, which is plagiarism. So, you find that out more by asking people, you ask an attorney, you find uh, someone who knows about where you're crossing the line from paying respect to and stealing. That's not how I understood the question. Don't, okay. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably wrong. Well, we'll what, take the other view too, but the other possibility of the meaning. So, I think Jacob's approach to drawing or painting, so he said too cerebral, too much homework. So, I feel like there's he's putting too much logic and thought into it mm -hmm. instead of feeling. That's how I understood the question. Okay. Well, then I have, a, I have an answer for that too. Do you? Mm, yeah. My answer is that it's okay to be cerebral in your approach to doing art. That's great. If you're, if you're good at that, that is your strength. You can exercise that strength and you can get better at it and you can approach it that way. But also try to practice getting better at the feeling of it. It's not going to come natural to you. I can tell also by the way you talk. Um, you're, you're very cerebral in the way you talk, <laughs> not just the way, the way you create art. And that's great that, that not everybody has the superpower that you do. And so, that will put a different uh, twist or uh, that'll, that'll determine your style as well. That's totally okay. Don't try to fight it and, and hide that away. Um, but practice the feeling side of it. Practice the expressiveness and try to get good enough at that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're trying to find your voice and part of it is, is my voice going to make me miserable for how much research and work I have to put into it. Uh, there are composers like uh, Piero della Francesca who was a mathematician whose compositions are very carefully worked out and organized and Tintoretto whose work seems to be really expressive and gestural. And it's also the difference between someone who does finished illustrations and cartoons. A cartoonist does not have to research that much. In fact, if they research too much, it starts to move away from being a cartoon. I did uh, an illustration of the mock turtle from Alice in Wonderland, and I wanted that mock turtle's fin to be as authoritative as it could be. This is before the internet. I went down to SeaWorld several times and I drew from mock turtle or from, from turtle fins so that I get it all right. And I got it right. But when I tried to illustrate Animal Farm, I was doing so much research of what these animals would look like. I never, I never got the project done because it wasn't for money. And it was like, you'll spend all of this time making sure every animal is accurate because you're a, a suburb kid who doesn't know what these animals look like. So there's a teacher of illustration history, Terrence Brown, who taught at TAD who had an admonition for students, be careful what you get hired for first. Because if you get hired for something first, that is all you're going to get hired for over and over, and it's a grind, and it was hard to get it done, remember, that's what people are going to want you to do over and over. So, you're, you're trying to find your voice, and that's a spectrum of 
how much can I make it simplified and cartoony and inventive and playful and not based on reality? And how much do I have to research and make sure everything is correct? It's the difference between historical fiction where you're trying to get things right and fantasy where you can make it up, but even good fantasy artists know that knowing historical uh, occurrences can help uh, in uh, inform their work. So, it's a spectrum. If you look at it that way, that might help you to decide which way you lean, whether you need to balance yourself with the other and run hard in one direction. Cartoonists yeah. have it hard in some ways, but they've got it easy in other ways. And that is, they they don't have to make things accurate. They have to make things instantly and quickly recognizable. Yeah, and generally be careful of people giving you advice like that, saying that an artist should be like this, should work like this, should think like this. That mean, which artist? Who are they talking about? Are they talking about themselves? This is the way they work, so now you should do the same thing? Like, just be careful. Realize that this is subjective opinions. Um, and yeah, just be careful of that. And make sure you know what you love. I mean, when you're on the receiving end as a fan, what kind of art do you love? And you say, I think I could contribute to this. And then you run off into your own individualized development of that vibe, which is, it was a choice for your desires. I mean, you think of somebody like William Bougereau, right? Like, certainly he's thinking very logically through a lot of different things. Yeah. And, and yeah, he's... I'm sure there's an element of feeling coming in through there. He's, you know, there he's is. probably feeling the composition and the story yeah. that kind of just comes through intuition and stuff. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that naturally he's a lot more logical and yeah. thinks through problems. But he's balanced himself out a little bit, you know, and he's able to do a little bit of both. But and he must have loved to paint for many hours. Yeah. But his stuff is beautiful. Yeah. If somebody told him, no, 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 more abstract qualities in your art, it's like, well, why? <laughs> why? Because yeah. you think so? You know? <laughs> Where's your strength, Jacob? <laughs> yeah. If you run with your strength, then you find other people don't like to do that and you're the one who does. One, one more, more question. question. Yeah. Okay. Hey, guys. I love your podcast. It's so good for learning some of the fundamentals if you're on a do-it-yourself art journey. You guys have been so good about teaching us how to acquire knowledge of the fundamentals, whether it be on composition or whatever else, uh, ourselves. And I was wondering if you could do the same thing on um, the technique of spotting blacks. Uh, a lot of comic artists will refer to it this way about how to spot blacks on, let's say, their figures, for example. And uh, I've been trying to figure out how to go about doing this. Um, you know, you look at someone's work like, a Mike Mignola or um, a Frazetta or, or, or a Jim Lee, and you can see that in all their figures, whenever they're shadowing them, they're really good at finding the, the blacks on these figures, and, and they kind of abide by a two-value system. And uh, and those, those shapes will look so abstract, but as a whole, they look like a completed figure. Um, I, I want to know how to do this better myself. Um, what are some ways we can go about studying so that we can spot blacks on a figure a lot easier uh, in our compositions um, and, and do it in a way that doesn't seem so monotonous? Um, so thanks, guys. Bye. If like if there's shadows, if you're working from reference, 
which I'm assuming if you're trying to spot them, you're trying to see them in something that already exists. So, you're, you, the, the trick isn't to cop, look at them, see them and copy them, is to design them correctly. And that's about being able to abstract something that look and make it look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the solution to that is practice. <laughs> practice. <laughs> they hate us, Marshall. I, I would pick up on, on your answer if you're done. <laughs> sure. Can you elaborate? How do you practice this? The, the first thing is what Stan mentioned is that you learn the logic of light. The logic of light is important because if you don't know the logic of light, all you'll be doing is decorating without knowledge. So, understand how core shadows and form shadows and cast shadows work. And when you've got that, then you can make them correct. But you say, yeah, but they don't look good yet. They look realistic, but they don't look good. Then there's two places you go to study. One is you go to Mike Mignola and Jim Lee and these people that you admire. And you see how they do it. Bernie Wrightson learned to do it beautifully. He learned it by looking at Frazetta and copying Frazetta. And listen to what they say in case they have something worthwhile to say about it. Go to masters who design their spot blacks in good shapes, even put tracing paper over them and copy them and put them up on the wall separate so that you can say, oh, they do a lot of shapes like the state of Idaho. They do a lot of straight lines and then curved lines. You'll find metaphors and that's the next thing I point you toward. Find spot blacks in nature that interest you, like dappled ponies and Dalmatian spots. Wait, spotting blacks, is that a specific term about not seeing them, but but it's the spot that it's a full-on spot of black? Comic book uh, illustrators put, uh, pencilers put an X in an area that they want the inker to just fill in as a pure black. Right. It's a big shape of pure black. Yeah. But spotting them isn't about seeing them. It's about just filling them in. It's just, it's about designing them. It's about choosing them as black patches, which strengthen it graphically. Okay. I, I just didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that was a technical term. Go to your natural touchstones. The continents on the on the globe are great to start with. You can look at patterns in the moon. You can look at the way uh, that the, uh, all sorts of things in nature. The, the touchstones that you love, put them into Photoshop and turn them into no tans by uh, doing extremes of the posterize command. And look at those things that you love and say, I like these shapes. And then you find the balance between the logic of light that gives you good rendering but might give you boring design and the exciting design that you're trying to find in those logical light patterns and meeting them up together. That's almost a synopsis of how good composition happens. It's the difference between what you actually observe and what you choose to observe. So, like we both said now, that it's it's more about learning how to design it and and you could do that through either studying nature or studying masters, whatever you choose. It's about spotting or identifying what looks good, right? And you can just use your own taste. You look at something in nature and you think, oh, that looks really cool. Why? What is it about this shape that looks really nice to me? And then do a little sketch. See if you can replicate that feeling of why that shape looks cool. Um, For me, when I was um, a full-time student, a lot of this practice didn't come in figure drawing. Um, it came through landscape painting, actually. Because mm. with, with when I was doing figure drawing, a lot of the attention was so... There's so much on trying to be accurate mm-hmm. that the designing it didn't come until much later on when I got more comfortable with the body. Mm-hmm. 
you know, where I wasn't trying to be accurate anymore. Now I was actually designing it. But initially, it was really difficult to design and also observe and be accurate with the body. But with landscape painting, when I go out, it's like, I don't care if I mess up the shape of this tree or this mountain or whatever it is. I'm just going to try to design it and look yeah. look at what, why does that tree look kind of cool. And I would try to exaggerate that design. Yeah. And that's where the practice came for me um, is landscape painting. You could do the same with still life. So it's just, I think it's easier to practice that with inanimate objects or, or, or I mean, animate. Yeah. But anyway, it's safer to take liberties. Yeah. Where with a body, you might feel that you're you're violating what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Start with trees. Okay. Should we say goodbye quickly? My memory card just filled up, so the people watching probably are uh, seeing the crappier Zoom call recording of me yeah. at this time, <laughs> which is fine. But yeah, anyway, that was the last question. Do you have anything else to add, Marshall, to that last question? No, let's take up more voicemails in another episode and we'll also yeah. take up pricing and negotiating yeah. and that kind of thing. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Marshall. Good answering your questions. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, thank you. for submitting your questions. Those are great. That was fun. Loved okay. it. See you <laughs> all. Right. Bye, Bye, guys.